listening to Auto D coming at you live. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Auto D Show here at Dave Pratt's Star Worldwide Network Studios, broadcasting high above Camelback Road in beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona. I am your host, Otto Daniolo, and tonight my guest is Ross Ojedas, a former music executive at A&M Records and is currently a media consultant at Notable Artists. Um, Ross will be with us right after this first song from my last album, a tune that's called Fake It Till You Make It. So check it out and stay tuned. And that was Fake It Till You Make It from my last CD entitled A Muse Zing here on the Auto D Show, which is brought to you today by the 2019 Fervor Records Music Business Summit happening April 6th in Glendale. Speakers at the event include longtime Elton John tour manager D.C. Parmet, 
L.A. music supervisors, Todrick Spaulding, Greg Sweeney, Malia Hall, and Rob Lowry, as well as entertainment attorneys and other industry professionals. So it's going to be an event that you won't want to, or excuse me, you won't soon forget. And if you are an artist or a songwriter or a producer looking for opportunities or just more information to help you along your career path, then uh, don't miss it. It's free to attend, but first, you must register. To register online, go to fervormusicbizsummit.com. That's F-E-R-V-O-R, musicbizsummit.com, and do it today. So uh, now let's have a chat with the man of the hour, former A&M Records music executive and current media consultant, Ross Ojeda. How are you doing, Ross? Well, I think I've adopted a new theme song because it describes my life completely accurately. <laughs> Fake it till you make it. <laughs> Well, you know, it's a lot of people use that phrase all the time, so it's a it's a common phrase, um, and we could spend an hour discussing the merit of that phrase. Actually, uh, I'm not a big fan of it, but on the on the other hand, perception is reality, and sometimes faking it is how you practice, and then all of a sudden you get hired to do what it is you're saying you can do, and if you can do it, you can pull it off, then you got the gig. It's just another way of saying you've got self confidence, even though other people don't know it yet, until they know you have it. That's right. Now, you've been in the business for a long time. In fact, let's not even start there. <laughs> it's like, thanks for coming in. <laughs> you know, you're a busy guy. Got a lot going on. And uh, I'm surprised that we haven't crossed paths earlier, actually. But uh, I, did, I did a bunch of records for A&M, and I think I did them when you weren't there. Okay. It was like in a hole. Do you recall C.C. Peniston came out of, of course, the valley? From Phoenix. Yeah. And that was the first record I did with A&M. And then... On that record, we would put other artists, and every time we did, like a background singer or a rapper, and every time we did, they said, who's that? And we got them signed, and we did another album, and we, we piggybacked about five artists that way and got to do all these records, which was, was a wonderful time. But she was incredible. She was uh, just an incredible act. Were you still at A&M then in 92? No, you were I, in your break. You were taking right. a break. I was doing, well, actually, I was doing independent promotion. Okay. Because I went after the money. Mm-hmm instead of the fun and uh a&m was an incredible company mm -hmm. i wish i hadn't left but, oh yeah but the money was a draw that i couldn't resist <clears throat> for the independent work yeah. well that's a, there's a lot of a lot of questions <laughs> right there so uh first of all you say you wish i hadn't left tell me kind of why was it the lifestyle while you were there or was it the the people you were working with at the label no sometimes you you ego your ego got so big that you think that you're god's gift to whatever mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh you know i just felt i wasn't being paid enough mm -hmm. and other people were willing to pay me more mm -hmm. and uh i decided well i'll i'll go for the money okay so uh everything was cool at the label you just wanted oh, yeah. something bigger oh, yeah yeah uh they're my family right you now know, how you, long were you at a&m for 12 years Okay. And in multiple capacities, as I mm -hmm. understand. Mm -hmm. How did the, Should we start with how you landed there, or should we go back farther first? Um, well, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a diehard Michigan fan, so I always like to start where I began. A lot of great music out of Michigan. It, it, it was. The Ann Arbor Blues Festival was yeah. a, an incredible time to... Uh, but uh, I, I got to University of Michigan, and it didn't have a radio station. So a few of us students petitioned the Board of Regents, and we we got our way. We got we got a ten watt FM station. A ten watt. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And in short order, we became as well listened to in the Detroit area. Uh, even though the ten watts was uh, small, we were in a very dense populated area, and we actually showed up on the Arbitron. Holy cow! That we were we were that that the the community embraced us that and way. you started this i was uh, i started out as a music director uh progressed to program director and became the general manager all in about a year and a half wow how many kids were involved in running the station we had a 24 hour seven day a week 365 crew and uh, <laughs> that's, wow that's pretty cool and we had a news department a production department i mean we had we were falling all over ourselves with people wanting to to volunteer mm -hmm. and we had we uh we had a a, a commercial station it was just a, a carrier current for those of those who don't know what that is the uh, dorms all had a, a hookup 
and if you put your radio, plugged your radio into the uh, wall socket, you could get our signal. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you couldn't. And that one we used to make money. Interesting. So uh, it was called WRCN, and we made so much money that we could pay ourselves handsomely. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Interesting. So I was collecting money as a music director, program director. Uh, I even decided I learned politics, and so I became the chairman of the board of directors. Okay, at the station. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So I, I wore multiple hats. So you had all this under your belt by the time you were, what? 20, uh, 20. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's pretty incredible. It was fun. Well, you also, I read that you were one of 13 siblings. Mm-hmm. And you're the only one that is not a musician, or Correct. wasn't. Correct. Let's say. <laughs> but yet, here you were starting a radio station. Was it because, I mean, was it that everybody was playing music when you were growing up, and there was music all over, and you just loved music, or what? Well, interesting enough, uh, we, we did a lot of, my, my siblings did a lot of church gigs. Okay. And I said, well, we could make money if we did other church gigs mm-hmm. other, at other churches. Okay. So guess who booked them? You did. You just managed the process. And they were happy to play. I, they were happy to play because they got paid. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> so you were just this little entrepreneur going, look at all this raw talent sitting here. I think we can exploit this. Which is really a record company's goal. They even yeah. use the phrase in the, in the contracts mm-hmm. to exploit the masters, which mm-hmm. is accurate. You know, mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Now, uh, from the radio station, where did you go from radio when you quit that student well, station? I, you know, I, 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 I am observant, observant of everything around me. And, and uh, these people kept delivering uh, records because we were an important radio station. Yeah, I mean, if you're showing and, up in the um, And uh, uh, when you say these the, people, you mean record, record reps yeah. would come in. Yeah. But at that time, they were other students. And there was this guy from Wayne State University. He was a law student. And he was the A&M record rep. And ever since the 60s, I always liked A&M mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, so I just asked him the stupid question that anyone else asks. Hey, how did you get your job? <laughs> right. And he says, well, I'm graduating. You want it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I gave up my general managership because it was a conflict of interest in my senior year and became the A&M college rep for that the state of awesome. Michigan. And they paid me to go to East Lansing, Michigan State University, to Eastern Michigan, Central Michigan, Northern Michigan, Wayne State, University of Detroit. So wow. I, I got to play record rep mm-hmm. and get paid for it. That's cool. And have a business card. Oh, yeah. With the A&M logo on yeah. it. Already. Yeah. That's awesome. So now, do you recall who was on A and M when you were young that made you like the label? Oh, who yeah. were some of those artists? Oh yeah. Do you want to brass? Uh, well, yes. I mean, obviously. Uh, I had all those records. Casino Royale. <laughs> and the Carpenters were very early on, yeah. but they would they would have offbeat type. Of, but the thing that they did is they went over to England in the mid sixties, sixty five. 63 um, and there's this genre that was coming out because this blues record infused it was called progressive rock and they signed all these uh, incredible groups you know there was the Yardbirds then and, 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 and Fairport Convention a lot of them were folk rock based mm-hmm. or blues based mm-hmm. but they sounded different than American bands right and the, that's what I loved. You know, I was, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, this is cool music. So it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was just something new that was coming up. And, and you'd, you'd, you'd uh, hear all these different sounds because everyone was doing something different, you know. And, uh, and there'd be a classical sounding mm-hmm. record and there'd be a folk-sounding record, and then you'd hear um, someone with Celtic music. You know, all these right. things were coming out. Well, you had to have a lot of fun because you're getting these records from the record company. You don't know what they are. Mm-hmm. Or you might know what's coming, but you haven't heard it, and no one's heard it before Correct. you. Correct. So you must have felt pretty special. Well, you feel like 
I, I, one of my favorite stories, I'm going to kind of jump ahead. Okay. Uh, people might say, what did you like most about being in the music business? And today, in fact, it happened, so I'll kind of link the two. Um, to hear a song before anybody else has heard it is the coolest thing. I was in Seattle, and a lot of times you pick someone in the band that you kind of have chemistry with, and you hang with each other after the concert. And I was in this hotel room, and this one of our artists says, I just wrote a song today, and I, would you like to hear it? And I said, sure. And he gets out his acoustic guitar and he sings. And I smile ear to ear and I said, man, you make my job way too easy. <laughs> the artist was Sting. He was with the police then. Yeah. And the song was Every Breath You Take. Oh, my gosh. You heard that the day you wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the stuff you die for. <clears throat> yeah, that's priceless. And, and today I, I'm friends with Peter Himmelman. And he likes to post on, on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he wrote a song called Whispering Winds. And he just wrote it this morning. And he posted it. And he says, I'm in Chicago on the 19th floor, and I'm going to play this song for you. And so I wrote on Facebook, imagine a friend drops by. And he says, yeah, I just wrote this song. You want to hear it? That's the kind of stuff I was used to all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And you got started so young, really. Uh, you must have been the coolest kid because your friend, the friends would all ask you, what's coming? You know, what's coming? And you, were you ever asked by the label to give feedback like, what do you think from the ground? Is this going to hit? Is this going to be a hit? Well, yes. In fact, um, uh, I didn't know it. And sometimes you've got to be humble. You don't even know you're good at something <laughs> until someone tells you you are. And the way you know it is because they keep asking you over and over again for an opinion. Mm -hmm. And you kind of go, oh, I like this, you know. You don't know that they're asking you for a reason, that you have what I call an ear. Right. And, uh, and very soon, early on, I discovered I had an ear. So you just knew what was going on? You could just tell naturally? And they could tell you had an ear? Mm-hmm. So how did you leave that position? And did you go from there to Los Angeles and work at A&M? Yeah, well, I, <laughs> time was running out. You know, I knew that, that when I, I was in my senior year, if I didn't score a full-time position uh, with A&M, I didn't know what I was going to do. So right. I, was, I followed my future boss around all over. Um, my, uh, my boss was a marketing guy. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, I'm, I'm looking for a college promotion director. Uh, why don't you meet me in Chicago? Oh, I can't make it to Chicago. Why don't you meet me in Baltimore? And so he would book me and kept, for some strange reason, he kept canceling. But I already had a plane ticket, so I went. Mm -hmm. And I was following my future boss around. And he would ask people, who's this guy? Well, he's our college rep from Michigan. Who's this guy? He's a college veteran. Why is he here? He was in Chicago last week. And, and when I asked him for a job, he says, sorry, I, I hire the best guys. I have a pick of the litter from Columbia, from Warner Brothers. I hire the guys who are the best. I don't give rookies a, a shot. And years later, he said, you know why I gave you a job? Because you kept after me, and I figured I can't teach that. If you can, if you can get me to crack, you can get any song played. That's right. That's interesting. That's tr the truth, really. I mean, it's you respond to the squeaky wheel, and you, to get somebody off your back, do it as they need. It's no big deal, and you get them done. You know, to hire somebody, that's pretty big, though. To hire you to get your office back. So I was the first rookie he ever hired. Congratulations. And he said, I'm not going to I'm I'm not going to throw you to sharks. I'm not going to put you in a major market. I'm sending you to Phoenix. And back then Phoenix was a good secondary market. Mm -hmm. I came here. And what year was that? Do you 1976. Okay. And I got off the airplane and uh, it was a terminal 1, no jetways. Right. Walk onto the tarmac. Yep. As I hit the aircraft door, this blast of heat hit my face. It's August, midnight, and I'm this on this Hughes Air West. And it's your first visit. 
it's I'd never been here. And before. you think something's wrong outside? No, the play. quite the contrary. <laughs> like there must be a fire. I, I felt like I was coming home. Interesting. It was a magical, mystical moment. That's interesting. You know, when I first arrived, it was the middle of the summer, and it was Terminal Two. And so there was a jetway. So I didn't feel it until I walked out to sit at the curb. <clears throat> and when I did, I felt like you just opened the oven and put your head in the oven, that feeling of dry wave of heat. But I remember sitting down on my suitcase waiting for the car. And I said to my wife, we had just arrived, and I said, I'm going to be back here. <laughs> I knew there was something about it. It just made my, all my bones loosen up, my joints. I just felt, thought, this is, I'm, we're not going to get enough of this on this trip. I need to know what this is all about. Three years later, I was here. Never left. Yeah. A lot of people don't don't have that experience the first time. And I like to think, uh, being the youngest of thirteen, my dad left Mexico, went to Texas, married my mom, decided uh, to move to Michigan, and I thought, you know, my dad, my dad was an adventurous person. He had it okay. He had a comfortable life, and I could have stayed in my little town mm -hmm. and got married bought a house, had kids, but something said, you need to find your own place. So that's what I did. So you came out here in 80, in 76, mm -hmm. and uh, what's one of the first things you were doing for the label out here, do you recall? Uh, well, I, back then, A&M had a network of independent distributors. And, uh, Associated was probably? Associated and Alta. Yeah. Alta was my, where I had my office. Okay. Angela Singer was associated. Mm -hmm. And it was a family kind of thing. But like I said, it was a, a, an interesting, I was saying to, to Rick on the way over here that, uh, that I was used to radio stations being successful, in, like a, in this building, you know, a nice place. Mm -hmm. And not Phoenix. <laughs> there was KUPD that was in a trailer and there was a dump called Chris and another dump called KRUX and 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 there was KDKB was kind of okay but I'm going this is where the radio stations are you know it just felt different that's amazing but it was the excitement was here that mm -hmm. was the cool thing mm -hmm. especially KDKB yeah or as Lissa Wales would say KDKB okay <laughs> did she really yeah I miss Lissa. She was a great photographer. Exactly. And she was on a list of photographers you, you had on your uh, bio, just notes. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you about a photographer friend of mine that you might know, because you had you have also listed Bob Marley as there's a story here. <laughs> well, he was like Bob Marley's personal photographer back in the beginning, oh, Glenn, really? Glenn LaFerman. Did you okay. know Glenn? No, the, the name's familiar. <clears throat> all, the, all the pictures in the Rainbow Room are his, everybody's. Okay. And he's... He, was touring with the band before Bob was anything, and then when he broke. Mm -hmm. He just sold his collection to the family a few years ago for a crap load of money. Mm -hmm. But uh, before he did that, he was making prints on, of his own printing process on like four by four on, on a wooden frame, and he was assembling them. And he says to me one day, I was out in visiting, he says, hey, you gotta come with me, we gotta, we gotta load these up in my car. I'm like, what, we're loading these big, like four of them is all we can get into his vehicle. We drive down to Hollywood, and he puts them on the street. And I'm like, what are we doing? He's we're going to sell these. We have to sell these today. I'm like, Glenn, first of all, we shouldn't be here selling these. It's like, you can put these at a museum. You, know, you, don't need, you, don't, you don't need to be the one down here doing this. It was just so funny. It was such a funny. He was, you know, you're right. And then now he's selling them online, and he's selling his prints and his catalog online. But anyway, this, since we touched on that and photographers connected to Bob Marley, let's hear the Bob Marley story. Well, I'd like to tell you, too, from my university yeah. days. Uh, there was this guy named Gil Scott Heron, and he, he had a famous song called The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Mm -hmm. And he was booked at the University of Michigan for a concert, and his opening act was Bob Marley and the Whalers. And I often found, because I did the interviews, I often found it was a lot easier to, to talk to the opening act than it was the headliners. Mm -hmm. And they would give you more time. They were more generous with their time. And uh, we were hanging out at the student union. And Bob Marley pulls out this thing that looked like a cigar. But it wasn't a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that's the first, he handed it to me. And of course, uh, you know, when you're in someone's house, you drink what they drink, right. you eat what they eat. So I smoked what he smoked. <laughs> My first joint was with Bob Marley. <laughs> that's another story you can't beat. Now, the other one was uh, we had just, you guys said a magic word that my, many people don't know. We had just bought, because I told you we were rolling in money, we bought a Tascam board. Mm -hmm. Great little thing. I had no clue how to operate it, but I had people to do it. Right. And, uh, and this band had just been really released their first album, and they came to town, and uh, I said, come on down to the studio. And uh, I do my homework, so I said, you know, it sounds like there's a story there. And he says, it is. It's about our high school years. And the name of the album was Abandoned Luncheonette, and the name of the group was Hall and & Oates. And uh, I, kind of like you're talking to me, I, they opened up. Mm -hmm. And they just started talking almost like to each other. Oh, remember this guy? And remember how he did this with this girl? And, and, and I was recording it, of course. Afterwards, we edited it. And we did it the, the whole album in sequence. And there was a lady called Beth Rosengard. She was at, a, at Atlantic, their company. I sent them the tape. And they loved it. They said, could we use it? They pressed a whole bunch of albums, sent it all over to, to, to promote the album, and they submitted it to, it's, they're still around, but I don't know if people know. The equivalent of, 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 of uh, in radio broadcasting uh, is like the Oscars and the Emmys. In, in advertising, it's the Clio's. Mm -hmm. And we got a Clio. Wow. That's pretty cool. So thank you. There you go. Listen, I want to play a song, and then instead of just uh, wondering about, you know, with all the details we could about your whole career, you have all these names, and they're on here for reasons, and I kind of think there's good stories with every one of them, so I just might start throwing names at you, and you throw stories, and sure. if there's not one there, we'll skip it. But, like, first of all, before we even play a song, was Pablo Cruz A&M? Mm -hmm. I loved those guys. Great. Okay, cool. Well, we'll come back. We'll touch on that and see what's up. But first, I'd like to play a cut from uh, the Fervor Records group. And this is a song from a band called Reckless Serenade. And uh, you'll enjoy it. It's called Pretty Monster. Check it out. We'll be right back. Carolina There's no other fire Paint the room with walking eyes Carolina I've been begging for you Bite your lip, take me home tonight laughing in your sleep What do pretty monsters do? 
You're listening to AutoD, coming at you live. Hey everybody, I'm your host, Otto Daniolo. Often, people I meet seem confused about what it is I actually do for a living. All I can say is grab my app. It's free in your app store. Just search Otto D. That's O-T-T-O-D. And then you'll have my whole story, from trumpet to guitar to platinum records and the movie business. In the app, you can stream my music, view a constantly updated concert schedule, and even land work on one of my projects, because that's where I post the job opportunities. You can also stream this podcast and stay on top of all the projects I'm involved in. Check it out and share it with the creative people in your life. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get back to the interview. And we're back with Ross Ojeda here on the Auto D Show. And uh, as I mentioned before, we played that song, which was Pretty Monster from... Uh, what was the name of those guys? Reckless Serenade, great name, on the Fervor Records label. Uh, but before we played that track, I mentioned that you have worked with so many great people in your in your career that I wanted to just start throwing some names at you to check uh, I, stories. I gotta, I gotta back up for a second. Okay. I want to let everybody know that I grabbed Otto's app, <laughs> and I'm going to make a bumper sticker that says, says <laughs> "I grabbed Otto's app." You know what? I'm gonna start selling those. <laughs> But I just think that's so funny. Grab my app. No. You know, it's like, what, what is that? This just sounds funny, but I appreciate that. Um, and you should grab my app. Download it. It's free. You know, it's really great. So, uh, but back to this. Let me throw a couple names at you. We mentioned Pablo Cruz. Mm-hmm. They had the one massive hit song, I remember, that was on the radio. Their first big hit. Uh, what you're going to do? How'd that go? Sing it to me. What you're going to do when she says goodbye? There was another one, too. They had a bunch of hits, actually. Yeah, yeah they had yeah. four or five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of another one. A real high vocal track. I had to sing it at an audition for a band that I didn't get. <laughs> That's what I remember about those guys. <laughs> but uh, So did you work with them individually, or were they just on the label, or what was your well, relationship? They, they were one of our baby acts, mm-hmm. and um, kind of segueing from Hall & Oates, they were our version of Hall & Oates. They were Blue-Eyed Soul. Right. And... Uh, they just were some Southern California kids who could hold their own jazz-wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good All players. excellent players. Interesting chords in the songs, not like your mm-hmm. typical radio mm-hmm. rock pop stuff. Right. And, uh, and you know, A&M believed in their artists. A lot of, a lot of artists came to our label knowing that we weren't going to just do one or two albums, that we were in it with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes in a group didn't have a lot of success. They might sell 30, 40, 50,000 units, and, and that would barely recoup the, the recording costs. Right. Uh, but A&M would believe in them. And, uh, and some, some acts we had an excellent out-of-the-box success, and Pablo Cruz was one. Okay. Um, but... Um, Brian Adams was an A&M artist, yes. wasn't he? Yes. Mm-hmm. Was he there? The Canadian he guy. Great. Just loved him. He yes. was great. Yep. Cheryl Crow. Just a <coughs> Another great one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But And Cat Stevens was uh, on A&M. Yes. I, I, I got to meet some amazing, what I considered uh, heroes, uh, people like Rick Wakeman and Cat Stevens. and I mean, they were already famous before I started working uh, for A&M, but because they were still in the stable of, of roster, uh, they... They, I would work with them. Mm-hmm. And Cat Stevens was one of, my, one of my favorites. Yeah. Artists or people or both? Both. He, he's an amazing man. And um, it's not, sometimes the best known song is, is really, really captures the essence of the man. And uh, he's a man of peace. Mm-hmm. And so doesn't, yeah. it, doesn't it make sense that he, his biggest hit was Peace Train? Yeah, yeah. But I, I like the songs because, you know, late at night when you're at home and you, you got a girl and you want to impress her and you want to put her in the mood. That was Cat Stevens' love songs <laughs> pretty good. did the trick. <laughs> now, let me ask you this. Were you ever instrumental in getting a group signed? I mean, at, a, at A&M, as A&R, that's, A&R, that's what people think A&R does, right? They mm-hmm. sign bands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Uh, 
you know, um, what we would do is we would whisper in the ear of the A&R executive, the VP of A&R, uh, because he had his stable of A&R people. But the A&R people, what their real job was, was uh, the, the group would be signed and it was their job to do the repertoire. Right, oversee the process in a And sense. make sure that first yeah. album was the best it could be. Right. They weren't out in the clubs at night looking at bands, so they really right. trusted us to do that. Mm-hmm. And one of the uh, bands that I liked a lot, uh, you're from Illinois, no, yeah. Illinois, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a band from, and I forget now, I'm, I'm too old to remember some things, they were from Indiana, I believe, and um, their first album was called Flat as a Pancake, because I, think, I think that that area of, uh, of the country is as they flat cut, as a pancake. They cut that record in South Peak in Illinois. Because I went to that studio right before it burned down, Golden Voice Studios mm-hmm. is where they cut that record. I loved that record. And and it was rare for A and M to sign acts that that had never had that had had a recording contract with somebody else. Mm-hmm. When an A and M act started, it was their first contract, mm-hmm. except for one act. Interesting. This act had uh, a Chicago band because I was back in the Mideast at the time, Midwest at the time, uh, had cut a record on wooden record, wooden, wooden nickel records. Mm-hmm. I remember wooden nickel. And, uh, and uh, the song was called Lady. Mm-hmm. And Larry Lujak loved the song. Larry Lujak, and W-L-S. I, sa- I, said, I said to Kip Cohen, we ought, to, we ought to sign these guys. And that group was Sticks. Yeah. That's great. Uh, you know, Gary Loizo was the producer he owned a place in Pumpkin, called Pumpkin Studios in Oak Lawn, where he did a lot of the Sticks records. And he was the singer in American Breed before that, the Bend Me, Shape Me tune. Mm-hmm. I met Gary because he lectured at a recording school where I was teaching, and I got to hear some great Sticks stories. But uh, the, the tune, um, is it Lady? Where it's it was like Dennis first Young on the piano. Mm-hmm. He said he came in and sat at the roads to play it, and they were going to go to lunch. He said, no, I don't, we don't want to do it. We're going to go. He said, no, just let me get it, because I have it in my head. <clears throat> he played it and sang it. They left. They came back. They could never beat that performance, ever. So that's the one that's on the record. They just put the guys around it a little bit. Mm-hmm. He just came in and just played it down as a rough. But it's those kind of stories you'd never know. And at the time, they didn't have Tommy Shaw. Right. And we signed them, and... Their first album didn't do that good. There were some really good songs on it. But when Tommy came on, the complexion of the whole band changed. The chemistry yeah. changed. Yeah. And I knew they were going to be huge. Yeah. So when you, the, that's another aspect of, of, of doing what I do. You kind of smile and go, I knew it. Mm-hmm. I knew it. Now, the Tubes were a Phoenix band. Mm-hmm. They ended up on A&M. Mm-hmm. And did you have anything to do with that? I was in um, a college rep. And I thought I was going to get fired. Uh, they said, the band's coming to a club in, uh, at MSU, Michigan State University. And you need to go up there and make sure that they're taken care of. And that was code for buy them a drink, make sure that they're happy. <laughs> <laughs> And I went up there, and uh, I hadn't done my homework. Uh, I thought that they were a band, like any other band, you know, four or five guys on a stage. No, there was 22 of them. <laughs> and uh, it was the, the band and dancers. And Kenny Ortega, who went on to do incredible things in Hollywood for his choreography, uh, was the kind of the conductor and I, I called them up and I said to Fee well um, why don't you all come down the night before their gig I said I'll buy you all a drink <laughs> I had an expense account but they drank in one hour $2,000 in 1976 that's a lot of money and yeah. I thought I'm going to get fired wow. but they were great yeah what a band I always heard that uh, they never recouped their initial recording advance. That that they had to take an advance on their second record to finish their first record, and they never caught up. Is that accurate? Yes and no. Okay. That's one of the reasons I stepped away from the music business. Yeah, it's tough. 
um, all the companies, not not A and M. A and M was pretty good, but the bookkeeping, uh, I don't think was all that honest. Well, I gave it the first recording contract that I saw, which was uh, an MCA records contract. I gave it to my CPA, and I said, "Hey, figure out what the royalty rate on these products would be." He, he came back to me and says. It's impossible. There's no way to make any of this, any sense of any of this. There's so many variables that are undefined that it could be anything I wanted it to be any day I wanted it to be anything. And I was like, okay, that's kind of what I got out of it too. So it was a way to get rid of a ban, yeah, and and cut the contract short by yeah. saying we're losing money. Yeah, and here's all the figures to prove it. Right. On the other hand, if you have someone like Sticks who's making big bucks, yeah. you go, hey, we barely recouped it on the last <laughs> one, but we want to extend your contract. That's right. That's interesting. Now, you know what? I want to get to something else, too. You mentioned stepping away, and I want to talk about that. But before we do, you posted a great little story on Facebook uh, the other day about Karen Carpenter. Okay. So I guess you were a huge fan, and then it turned around, and you had an opportunity to. That was the first time that I accepted the compliment that I had an ear. I, um, I was working in Seattle at the time, and my boss calls me and says, you need to come to L.A. And I went, okay, be glad to. I was always good to go to L.A. and have some fun. And uh, he didn't tell me why. I get to the A&M lot, uh, the headquarters. Is, we, we just affectionately called it the lot because yeah, it was Charlie, Charlie's, Charlie Chaplin's studios. Yeah, I got to be there a few times, loved it. And, uh, and they said, he said, you need to go over to the studios, the A&M studios. So I walk over there. And uh, the only one there was Karen Carpenter. And I said, uh, Harold told me to come over here. He says, yeah, are you Ross? And I said, yeah. <laughs> he says, I've been waiting for you. I'm going, you've been waiting for me? He says, yeah. He says, I heard you're really good. <laughs> and I just laid down 28 tracks with Phil Ramone and I'm going to be putting out an album, and I want to know which songs you think should be on the album, and I want to know which song we should release first. No pressure. They, <laughs> they flew you in for this. Yes. Wow, Ross, you did have an ear. I'm glad they didn't tell me, because I would have been scared stiff the whole way. <laughs> I bet. I would have peed my pants. So I'm there, and she's a lovely person. She put me, I had met her once because at, 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 at the story I told about meeting Hal Blaine mm -hmm. at the University of Michigan, I interviewed Karen. Mm -hmm. Now, Karen was only two years older than me. But in, 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 in terms of music, she was a giant. Mm -hmm. She was a veteran. Yeah. I was new in the business. What I had no business being in the same room with you. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, we spent three days together, and naturally she said, um, "You know, you want to spend some time together," and we did. And we had two good years of being friends. She happened to pass away, mm. but um, she was an amazing lady. Now on that record. How many of the songs you picked ended up on the record? Well, A and M. This is another reason I why I left. Yes, <clears throat> I'll tell you an A and M A and R story way after you, if you want one. You might sure. commiserate with. Sure, sure. Um, and this could be inaccurate uh, because it's always being told to you by somebody. Mm -hmm. But they had just picked up a new head of A and R, mm -hmm. and his first act was an artist out of Phoenix, and. He, saw, he thought, well, if I'm going to sign something, they better take it on my first recommendation because otherwise, why'd they bring me here? Well, he gave them a demo. You know, it's a rough demo. And they said, no, this isn't going to fly. And he said, yeah, it is. And if you don't sign it, I'm gone because that's why you brought me. And so they said, fine. They took the demo and they put it out. They didn't re-record anything. To show him it wasn't a hit. It went straight to number one. And they picked up her deal, the option for the album, and now he was a golden boy and she blew up. <clears throat> but it, it was amazing, the fight... Uh, they put you in charge mm -hmm. of that artistic control, but mm -hmm. they but they can't give it to you. It's difficult. And I always thought that the, the number one way for an A and R guy to keep his job is to never sign an act, 
because then it's never your fault. Because <laughs> as soon as you do, I mean, Billboard had a section in the magazine called the A&R Turntable. It was the front, inside the front page where all the guys that got, got fired this week, because someone's going to pick them up next week, and they're going to work someplace mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't know why they got fired. You know what failure it was, but you remember their hits, you yeah. know? Well, you know this as well as anybody else, because we're all consumers of entertainment. When there's a franchise, the franchise must be protected. Yeah. And A&M felt that the Carpenters was gold. They didn't know if Karen could pull it off. Mm. And so they never released that album. Wow. Until 1996, when they were no longer A&M Records. Wow. They had sold the company. And I was so, she was devastated. I was devastated. Um, when you have a producer like Phil Ramone who did every one of Billy Joel's records, I mean, this guy, they had good chemistry and sometimes producers don't have good chemistry with, yeah. the, with the artists. They had, I was in awe. Mm-hmm. I would think I was always in awe yeah. when I was at a and I can imagine. It's, I mean, that's a pretty incredible concept. Now, you know what? Again, I keep wanting to ask about names, but we're, we've got like 12, 15 minutes. I actually wanted to play a song, but uh, instead I'm going to run, run through something here real quick. <laughs> on March 16th, Jake Allen, a gentleman who was recently on the show, is going to be playing at the MIM. I'm going to be opening up for him. He's incredible. Go to mim.org to get tickets. They've been on sale for about five, six days. They're already 50% gone. It's going to be a sold-out show. Get your tickets um, in the meantime, I was going to play one of his tunes, which I might play under music when we're talking on the way out, just so we can okay. sneak a little bit more of Jake in there. <clears throat> and I want to get to... I'll be there, by the way. Oh, you know what? I already bought tickets to my own show, just so I can sit out front and watch him. <laughs> you know, I've never done that. But I'm like, I'm not going to sit in the back. I want to get out here and see this show. So I'm, I've already got my tickets. But um, you mentioned, and I wanted to get to why you left the business. Now, we touched on it a little, but uh, you took 26 years off. And you're back. I mean, that's a big break. It is. It's an uncommon story in my in my experience. So, where did you go? What did you do? And why did you go there? Well, I had a good dad, and he always gave me good advice. And he said, "Before you leap, know where you're going to land." And uh, I I was burnt out. I, I I loved the the music. I didn't like the business. And so I decided to uh, to uh, do other things. And the only thing I knew, I had a series of jobs, so I won't go into that because it was just like try it and then it didn't work. But then I bought a, a, an insurance agency and uh, it paid the bills. That allowed me to do what I really wanted to do. All my life, I've considered myself a writer. And when you have the exposure I did to Hollywood, it's not just about music, it's film. And we were talking earlier about some of the great lines in films. You know, I'll have what she's having. (laughs) When Harry met Sally, whoa! (laughs) You know, there's there's just just these lines that, that just, you know, you just remember them. They become part of our culture. Right. And I love writing, you know, and, and a writer just loves it when they write something that memorable. Yeah. So um, I've been, I just decided to, to, to refine my chops, my writing chops. Okay. And I've written a lot, didn't publish anything. I did it for myself. Sometimes you have to prove to yourself that you can. That you can. And you know, you know, you're not going to be good out of the gate. Right. It takes you got to work at it. Yeah, and 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 you learn from other masters, and you learn by hanging with good writers. I met Tom Robbins. Okay. He's one of my favorite writers. Mm-hmm. You know, I love humor. Mm-hmm. You can you can calm a beast with humor. Mm-hmm. So if someone's angry. You can bring their their level down. On the other hand, you can raise the energy level, and and all with writing. So that's what I did, and um, and then I came to the end of the road, and said, you know, I'm 65. I'm going to be 65 soon. I'm going to retire. I approached my old boss Herb Albert, and said, I want to write a movie. 
can I pitch you on the idea? Because now I'm confident I can. Right. Okay. And uh, and he says, sure, tell me about it. And I said, A&M's history needs to be told, but not as a documentary, although it could be done very well that way. It has to be done as a story, because it was a story to me. I lived it. We all lived it as a family. So I, I want to, you guys, to the, the opening scenes for you to, you've just had a few hit records and you decide to set up a record company and you get some office space and in walks this guy and he's your first employee and he stays until the last day and then all the other employees that, that mix will do subplots. Mm-hmm. You know, could be my some little record rep buying drinks for the tubes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the stories, all the stories can be all in. the stories that you that you want, and that's the way the A and M story should be. So now, have you written that screenplay? I'm halfway through, and and Herb says, "Hurry up! I'm getting old. I need to do it. I need to do it before I die." Well, you know what? That's it's fascinating because I didn't know that about you, um, and. Uh, I think a few, a lot of audio people or creative people end up going into the, the pictures are a bigger thing than songs. They're small, and uh, I've been doing a lot of uh, that kind of transitioning as well. And I've written three screenplays in the last four years, and uh, it's fascinating. And I'm almost done doing my first film as a director, which I don't know what I'm doing. So I'll, you know, no one's going to see that one. But boy, did I learn a lot. You know, and then it really helps you write. You start to understand what's going on with the actors and what's going on in the scene and what drives it. It really helps forge your writing again when you get to go out there and see how yours didn't work mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's great practice and like it, the music business where you I would wander in different departments the, the photography department the marketing department you you just are a little sponge you just grab what they well in the in the movie business you do the same thing mm-hmm. you know I have friends who are film editors I have um, friends who are, are music supervisors. You know, when you we're in when you're in that community, you you just absorb more than just about your writing. Now you know how to, you know, do other things. I'm scanning through my notes as you speak of all the things we didn't talk about. <laughs> so I'm just going to throw a couple names at you, and you tell me if there's anything pops up. For example, uh, in terms of. Uh, Writers, where was writers? writers hey, I want writers. to talk about Notable. Yes, talk. Let's talk about Notable because now that's your your operation, right? Yes. So so I was writing this screenplay, and I get a phone call, and it's Peter Himmelman. Now, for those who people don't know, he he was a, a very popular artist in the '80s, but he never really made it huge. He just had a cult following, a very faithful following. He's maintained that, but he. Um, and it seems like Sting always sticks his head in my my life. I don't know why. Uh, he uh, he was going to open for Sting, and uh, what a what a great way. You know, if your manager says, "Hey, I got you a gig opening for Sting," do you want it? Do you want it? Of course. He said, "No." <laughs> I've become an observant Jew, and no one wants me to tour with them if I'm not going to play on Friday nights. Holy cow. So he killed his own mm. performing career. Yeah. But I respect that. I was going to say, he's not faith. upset about it, right? No. Now his kids are grown, and he calls me up and says, I've heard you're pretty good at what you do. I want to start performing again. And um, what do you think I should do? So we had this conversation. And he says, uh, I'm coming to Phoenix. And, and the, he played at Vim. And it was a disappointment. For, for someone in my line of work, you want a full house. And it was less than half. So about 200 people. And I'm going, oh my gosh. you know. And he says, I said, I'm so sorry that this didn't happen for you. He says, that's why I'm here. It's because I knew it's going to happen if you help me. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> and I went, okay, we're on. So he became my first client. He says, you need to make a company. <laughs> You need to make a company because yeah. I need you to help me. And, and, and he, I so that. I said, how about notable success? And he says, no, it's redundant. It is? Huh? <laughs> so he says, how about notable artists? That's great. Anyway, okay. And then he sent me my logo in the mail. This is what I love about being with creative people. Yeah. They don't hold back. Yeah. You know? 
And, and so he gave me my logo. He's my first client. And he says, and as long as you're helping me and you're reviving all your connections and making new ones, I think you ought to help emerging artists. So I mentor. I call my, my business is in two, two levels, mentorship and projects. And I have projects, people who, they may not be able to pay me, but I'm going to make some money some way. I just got uh, a band called Heritage signed this thing's management. Awesome. Damn, that sting again. <laughs> Congratulations. So I didn't want to manage this band, but I knew who could. And right. like you were saying, you know, attorneys. And, and I just advised them on. So they, they went from mentorship to projects. Mm -hmm. And some people will and some people won't. But I love all the bands that I'm seeing. I saw this six-woman group recently, they, and I know nothing about Latin music, but they have it. Mm -hmm. And they write their own music. They're called Las Peligrosas, Las uh, Choyas Peligrosas. Where did you see them? At uh, the Valley Bar. I've okay. seen them. I just go to all, all, as many gigs as, as I can because right. I never tire of seeing them. And then I, I, I run into people all the time, and some people are sending me material. And, and I, I, I'm big into publishing. If okay. I might not be able to help you with, cool. with, with a record contract. That's a good thing for but, people to but, know. But you really need publishing. Yeah. And this guy, Danny Roberts, sent me something, and I loved it. Awesome. And he has a group called the Plump Toes. Okay. But I'm working with a lot of people. Cool. And... Uh, my wife says. So, if people want to reach you, the best way is just to Google notable artists. Yeah, yeah. Send me an email. Okay. Uh, like I said, I've got to love what you do. I'm not going to lie to you, but I also say, I don't know nothing. If I say I'm not interested, don't believe me. <laughs> yeah, believe keep, in yourself. Yeah. yeah, you have to. But I don't have. I can't help everybody. Yeah. So I'm going to pick and choose. Hoyt Axton. Oh, <laughs> I collect writers as friends. Uh -huh. And Hoyt was an A&M act, and we became friends. His mother wrote Heartbreak Hotel for Elvis. Yeah. So he came from a good lineage. Yeah. And, and Hoyt and I became friends. In fact, his birthday is coming up March 25th. I observe that every year. Just like Karen. Karen and I have, uh, my, my birthday was March 1st. Karen's March 2nd. Wow. So everyone uh, I know is March. All the March birthdays. <laughs> Mine's coming up in March, and uh, my daughter's birthday is in March. March wow. is full. Let me throw another name at you, Chuck Mangione. Chuck uh, was one of those people I recommended. Uh, he was uh, with um, I forget the label now, uh, small jazz label, and uh, and I went to Rochester, and he was famous there. He was with the Rochester Philharmonic. And I suggested to Kip that he needed to get signed. And uh, the, the, it took three albums, but the third album, huge, huge. Ross, I got to let you go. So <laughs> here's a little Jake Allen music. Thanks so much for coming in. It's just been a real pleasure. And I know we'll talk some more. And I hope everybody enjoyed uh, your time as much as I have. Thank you. Take care.